America has gone spy balloon crazy. That's the moon. Well, what the heck is that? Breaking news tonight on that Chinese spy balloon. Balloon flies over the United States collecting data over every military base in America and the president just sits Two weeks by. ago, the first Chinese flying device drifted into the public's view in the skies above Montana. Beijing insists the balloon was a weather device. The US strongly disagrees. By the time the device was shot down by a US Air Force fighter jet over the Atlantic, Secretary of State Antony Blinken had cancelled a trip to China and relations are showing no signs of improving. Welcome to the iPodcast. I'm Serena Sandu, and this week we will be looking at why these spy balloons have caused concern, amazement, and a diplomatic crisis between the world's leading superpowers. Later, we'll be taking a dip into the waters of Britain's dirtiest rivers and explain what we at I are planning to do about it. But first, we are joined by Kieran Monks, our foreign news reporter who's been looking at balloons, UFOs, and what this latest form of Chinese surveillance tells us about the world today. Hi, Kieran. So what are these balloons that everyone seems to be talking about? Uh, At this point, there seems to be more questions than answers. So the first object uh, is identified as a Chinese spy balloon by the US, which is vigorously denied by the Chinese, which claims it is an innocent uh, meteorological device, which is um, not a universally accepted explanation. But the last three objects, there is very little official clarity. The most recent, which was shot down over Lake Horan in Michigan, is described as an octagonal structure with strings. Another that was shot down in Canada uh, is described as cylindrical. And very little details at all on the second that was shot down over Alaska. Uh, The Pentagon is clear that the events are not necessarily connected, although that's not really being swallowed by the broader public or media. Into this vacuum, there's a lot of speculation about what these might be. And if they are for spying, why not use planes, drones or, say, satellites? Well, we've been speaking to some aerospace dynamics gurus, and they believe that the balloon offers certain advantages. It's more difficult to capture through radar, it's high enough that it's it's difficult to access. And until now, the suggestion is that they've been able to snoop away happily without being detected. Even though some of the satellites are stationary, they should be able to give quite a wide access to the to the user. Also, the balloons are seen to be closer to Earth than satellites. So various White House spokespeople have been saying that they might be able to give a fuller picture than satellites. And it's quite clear why there's a lot of mystery from certain parties involved. But why is it that the US government won't tell us what these objects are? Yes, I mean, they do seem to be rather opaque in their discussions. They're saying that they're not going to prejudge any investigations or or study of the objects. But in at least two of the cases, the objects haven't been recovered. uh, And there's very little prospect of them being studied. So we might never really get an answer on that point. And it's creating a lot of speculation and a lot of 
unrest in US politics. So you have the Republicans demanding answers and very, very clear statements and uh, a response to what they see as a Chinese incursion into American territory. But there isn't really the basis for action whilst so much remains a mystery. So, so far, there's been four objects spotted in three days, I believe. Do you think that there could be more? Are experts saying that there could be more on the way? Well, what is striking is that once the first was identified, not only has there been this slew of further objects, but it's also widely indicated that this has become a kind of regular practice and and is, is almost kind of routine. I mean, the Chinese claim that there have been 10 US balloons in their airspace. The US claims that the Chinese balloons have been across more than 40 territories. And the, the, the suggestion is that it's, it's only recently been able to detect this type of craft, which, as we discussed, has certain stealth capabilities. So it's more a case of we're only just now becoming aware of their activities, whereas before they were able to blithely go about their business without anyone bothering them. So are you saying that balloons could have been floating around for a long time and we're only just noticing them now? That's my understanding, yes. And so it's not just China that is doing this. It's also suggested that the US, whether or not uh, it's doing it in China, we don't know. It, the US denies this. But it's, it's not an isolated practice and it's not just China. So Republicans have criticised President Joe Biden for what they deem to be a slow response in shooting down the initial balloon. What might have been the hesitation and what unique challenges do these balloons present? Well, this was initially couched as concern about safety, that if the balloons were shot down over a populated area, that this could be dangerous uh, for civilians. And I think there's also an eye on ensuring that whatever is contained within the balloons or objects can be recovered as far as is possible. Now, in some of the latter cases, it may not be possible to recover the, the object at all. We understand that one is in Lake Huron and, and one is, is in the ocean somewhere near Alaska. In the first case, it was allowed to drift over the South Carolina coast and then shot down with a missile with an eye to a recovery operation. And we believe that that is ongoing and there's some very dramatic images coming from that sea operation. And we hope very much that that will yield some results in terms of telling us what was in the balloon. Now, there is some discrepancy, perhaps, in the fact that the US authorities were able to wait for the craft to get out onto the open water, whilst they have also said that it has sophisticated navigating capabilities. So you would think that whoever was operating this, presumably China, and they wanted to protect their balloon, and they have since objected to it being shot down, that they wouldn't have allowed it to get out over the sea into the sights of American fighter jets. So the backdrop to all this balloon drama, I suppose, is US-China relations. Where are they now after the discovery of these objects, would you say? The, yeah, the, the problem is that they can't be isolated from domestic politics in that the Republicans believe they're onto a winner by hammering Democrat weakness on China, which is going to be a big part of their campaign pitch going forward, that they're going to stand up to China, they're going to challenge some of its perceived illegitimate trade practices, that they're going to be forthright on some of its 
foreign policy areas that clash with US interests. We've seen a lot of tension over Taiwan lately. Whether or not they believe the president is making the right calls, it's very much in their interests to to seek escalation and to seek the strongest possible response. And that sort of explains some of the mixed messaging that at first you had people like Marco Rubio, the senator for Florida, attacking the White House for what they said was too weak a response in allowing this balloon to continue drifting all over America and Montana and military sites and what have you. And then as soon as the White House started taking very decisive action in the latter cases, and we saw these three unidentified objects shot down over the last week, Another senator, Mike Turner, then said that the Biden administration was being too trigger happy. So it does seem like there's quite a strong element of opportunism in this, which is driving escalatory rhetoric. Given the pre-existing tensions, which are to do with Taiwan and with China's ambiguous role in the, the war in Ukraine, besides the trade and economic issues, it does seem to guarantee escalation of rhetoric, at least, if not further action. One point from Senator Rubio, who has made this one of his main campaigning points for decades, really, that the, the perception that the US is weak and won't stand up to China. He noted that unlike in the Cold War and the deconfliction line with Russia, there is no deconfliction line with China. So he asked the Biden administration to make a very clear statement. Now, he didn't say what that should be, but presumably uh, something sufficiently bellicose and strong in in their direction, which would obviously trigger something similar in response. And the Chinese don't appear very apologetic about these cases. Most of the tone is mockery. Uh, So the more this becomes a heated domestic political debate, more strain it puts on those diplomatic relations and the more upward pressure for escalation. It does seem, from what you've said, that Biden had his work cut out in his response to this. You know, it's got me thinking about the UK's role in this, if there is one at all. I mean, do these balloons affect UK-China relations at all? Well, in the last integrated security review for the UK, before the war in Ukraine, China was characterised as the main threat, the most menacing adversary. And then that was revised in light of the war to the point that the vast majority of the British kind of military planning and resourcing is going towards that. So given the concerns about British readiness in terms of any potential conflicts or or even something more like a a Cold War, a, a diplomatic war, that we might be already kind of overstretched. So it's obviously important from a British perspective, to seem to be on side with our main ally, the US. But I'm not exactly sure what this has to do with us at this point. Alongside US politicians, one group that is very excited are UFO spotters. Here's the comment from US Air Force General Van Herc that has got them particularly excited. I haven't ruled out anything at this point. We continue to assess uh, every threat, potential threat, unknown, that approaches North America with the attempt to identify it. So, Kieran, what are they saying to you? It does seem to be Christmas for the derided (laughs) but dedicated community of UFO watchers. I'm seeing statements of vindication and relief 
and triumphalism to an extent that they feel that they've been rubbished and mocked all the, all these years and now perhaps the world is is catching up with their point of view obviously we have to have a, a degree of uh, skepticism of, of, about this but they, they draw parallels to with the scant details that we've received for instance the small metallic balloon over Horan. They've looked into their vaults and they've pulled out some cases of small metallic balloons appearing over California in, in 2014. They also note that this is part of a pattern that there's also been some unidentified sightings recently in South America as well. So it's a really sort of busy time up in the skies at, at the moment and a, and a source for great excitement. Beyond the possibility of an alien visitation, some of the more seasoned figures of the community who who don't want to jump the gun say that at a minimum, this shows us that there have been blind spots, that there have been crafts flying into these areas without our acknowledging it for quite some time. So these are just the ones that have been detected. And so they are now calling for greater transparency over the management of the skies and, and particularly over sensitive areas, because a lot of the fuel for UFO watching forums is just these cases where something just appears mysteriously, normally over a military installation, and then is not acknowledged. And so they see this as the very much the tip of the iceberg. Well, no doubt they will have their eyes glued to the skies for weeks to come. What does this whole saga say about modern spying technologies? That it's, a, it's an exciting area, that, that it's full of innovation and surprises. Although there's been no confirmation of what the other three objects are, there is a lot of speculation, some of it reasonably informed speculation from aerospace and aviation specialists, that these were quite likely drones. And if so, the fact that they couldn't be identified suggests we're perhaps dealing with new generation products, uh, new technologies being tested. And then the fact that the balloons were detected when perhaps they weren't able to before suggests that the the radar and the defensive capabilities are coming along as well. So it it's really seems to be a kind of arms race in this enhanced surveillance area. And as relations become more fractious and tending towards kind of open hostilities between the major powers of the world, it seems that this will be a major battlefield. Thank you, Kieran. That has been absolutely fascinating. Speak to you later. Pleasure. If you're interested in geopolitics, you are sure to have been keeping a close eye on the situation in Ukraine. Next week, Molly Blackall will be putting your questions to our in-house expert on foreign affairs, Patrick Coburn. If you would like Patrick to answer your questions, do send us an email on podcasts at inews.co.uk. That's podcasts at inews.co.uk. Reporting that breaks down global affairs for our readers is what we do every single day at I. So if you want to commit to staying up to date in 2023, with trusted, impartial journalism straight from our team of award-winning reporters and commentators. Join us now and get unlimited access to all our journalism, subscriber-only newsletters from our expert columnists and daily puzzles. For more coverage of this and other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i.
Eyes for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. I, for open minds, subscribe today. Britain's filthy waterways are a national disgrace. Only 14% of the UK's rivers are classified as being in a good ecological state. If things don't change, that could be as low as 6% by 2027. What does this mean in practice? It's killing off our fragile ecosystems, making us sick and destroying these national treasures for future generations. That's why we are launching the Save Britain's Rivers campaign alongside our sister publication, The New Scientist. Today, we are joined by environment correspondent Daniel Caporo to explain how we plan to pressure politicians and businesses into cleaning up their act. Hi, Daniel. So what is the current state of the river systems in the UK? Hi, Serena. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, in a word or two words even, uh, not good. The Environment Agency and and, uh, government ministers like to say that uh, our rivers are better than they've been since the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, it's true in in a very narrow sense. Our urban rivers like the Thames have very much improved. They're no longer open sewers. But if you pan out and look at the entire country, it's not good. If you look at Northern Ireland, they don't have any rivers in good ecological state. In Scotland, it's around 40%. It's 45% for Wales. And in England, it's just 14%. And as we reported on last week with the launch of our campaign, by the Environment Agency's own predictions, if they don't keep up their current interventions and also take fresh action, that figure will drop to just 6% in the next few years. They would say in their defence that that classification of good ecological status is incredibly stringent and there's several criteria that go into it and they have to meet every single one to be classified as good. So that's sort of the defence that they give themselves. But by their own sort of official measures, it's, it's not good. And Daniel, you mentioned the Thames there, and I know of at least a few community groups that are working to clean the Thames. So even if it's better, it's still not in, a, in great shape. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And and what's going in there has changed as well. And you also have a legacy of you know the industrial period. Britain might have uh, deindustrialized in recent decades, but the chemical legacy of that is still there in the sediment and in the water. One of the most difficult sort of intractable pollutions is this sort of permanent persistent pollutants. And on that uh, measure, DEFRA and the Environment Agency have basically admitted that they can't do anything to get those chemicals out of the water. You'll just have to stop any new amounts of those chemicals getting in and wait for, for the chemicals to kind of wash their way out, which by their own estimates won't happen until 2063. But you have got, in terms of sort of new issues, while you know big heavy industrial pollutants have kind of declined, Obviously, the population has got much larger and all of us produce a lot of waste. We go to the bathroom a lot. We shower, we use detergents, all these kind of things create pollution. And then, of course, there's been a huge intensification of agriculture and farming in, in the post-war period. You know, that's an issue that I'm looking into this week, which is is that uh, while our urban rivers may have improved a little bit, our, our rural rivers really aren't looking very good. And it's not just sewage. That's that's a big issue. And it's one that we're campaigning on and that a lot of people are very angry about. But a big percentage of, of the problem for our rivers is, is things like agricultural runoff and the runoff from roads and things like that. So let's just go back to the problem of sewage. Where is that sewage mainly coming from? Is it, you know, a large portion of it? Is it household waste? 
Uh, yes, uh, household waste, business waste, some industrial waste. Listeners may have seen our story last week about HS2 waste being in there in the mix. The reason for that is is pretty straightforward. It's that uh, the sewage system that we have, it's a sort of a 19th century design. It's not uncommon, so it's not unique to the UK, but basically the drains for rainwater and surface runoff are combined with the same sewage system that takes stuff out of your house or takes stuff out of your business. And most of the time that should, in theory, be okay, and the sewage treatment works should be able to handle that. But when you have heavy rain or, or heavy snow melt in some places, those sewage treatment works can then be overwhelmed, and at which point most water companies have environmental permits which allow them to discharge sewage into the rivers, into the seas. And it's perfectly legal because they have these permits. Now, you know, we've reported on, I've reported on questions about whether water companies are actually operating within those permits. There are questions as to whether they're sort of discharging earlier than they are permitted to because their treatment works aren't actually capable of treating as much sewage as they can. But in theory, of these sort of roughly 470,000 discharges a year, give or take, most are entirely legal. You know, that's the way the system was designed to work. And undoing that, taking out the rainwater flow into the uh, sewage system would be incredibly expensive, you know, many tens, if not hundreds of billions of pounds. So is that why it has been made legal? Is it purely about the cost of having some kind of alternative system? Or is there some kind of deeper history here that listeners might not be aware of? Yeah, so the environmental permits go back to the, the 1980s. And there have been efforts to phase them out to stop water companies from from relying on them. But whenever that happens, you have uh, the same old debate which comes up, which is one of cost, because of course, we've privatised our water companies. And that's not to say that privatisation is the only issue. In Scotland, they have a, a state-owned operator and it has similar problems. But certainly in England, there is a the privatised water companies and they are regulated and they're required to keep bills down and off what the sort of watchdog the thing that it prioritises most is is keeping bills cheap. And every time this debate comes up, water company executives will say, look at how many billions of pounds it'll cost and, and look how many hundreds of pounds this will add to the average family's water bill if we do something to stop the overflows. So it's it's a recurring debate that, that goes on, you know, every few years. And, you know, the government put together a task force to have a look at this. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that expensive. So by their own estimates, by this task force estimate, if you reduce the average number of discharges, not to zero, but to around an average of 40 a year per treatment works, I believe that is, uh, it would cost about £5 billion. But then, of course, if you went for a complete reworking of the system, their estimate is £600 billion. So it's hard to say how much it will cost, but you know we're talking a lot of money here. At the same time, obviously, campaigners point to the fact that these privatised water companies make substantial profits. They pay big bonuses to their executives, and of course, they pay out billions of pounds of dividends they have done over the past uh, three decades to shareholders. And should they be allowed to do that when they are not upgrading their treatment works to stop sewage from flowing into the rivers? What's at stake then if things don't change? I think you can look at sort of two broad issues here. One, which is important, and it's uh, what's been driving a lot of the campaigning, is the fact that People like to swim in the sea, they like to swim in their rivers, they like their pets to be able to jump into rivers, and they like them for their aesthetic value. And of course, you can't do that if your rivers are full of pollution. And you think of the recreational users, you know, I, I'm a, a whitewater kayaker in my free time, and, and it's always something that we're worried about when we go into rivers. You know, if you do roll over and, and swallow a bit of river water, will you catch something horrible? Because it turns out you've been paddling in, in raw sewage, and that's true for swimmers and, and the like. So that's one big issue is that this access to nature, you know, the government wants 
it's announced in its new environmental improvement plan that it wants uh, everyone in Britain to be within 15 minutes of green space or blue space, as they call it, you know, to be able to enjoy the environment because of all its psychological and environmental and economic benefits. But that doesn't work if, if those rivers and those beaches are covered in sewage. So that's that's one element. And then, of course, you have the environmental element. So Britain is one of the most uh, nature-deprived countries in, in the world, certainly in Europe, mostly because of our history, because we industrialized so early. We don't have a lot of wilderness left, and, and our biodiversity is, is pretty low, and it's getting worse. Lots and lots of species are at risk of extinction, at least uh, local extinction in the UK, and many of them are reliant on river environments. Britain should have a massive, healthy salmon population swimming up our rivers, and it doesn't. And salmon are in decline. Uh, trout are struggling. You look at the sort of invertebrate life around rivers, which then supports many great bird species that the public know and love, like kingfishers. And again, an unhealthy river cannot support strong invertebrate life and therefore can't support fish and can't support birds. You know, Tom, our, our science correspondent, has been reporting on the river Why. When things get really bad, rivers can be declared dead, you know, that they basically don't, can't support biological life. And that would be an ecological and environmental tragedy. And I think that's the path we're heading down without change. And what have environmental organisations been doing to bring awareness of these issues and indeed to help their local rivers? Is it going beyond river cleans? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, is highlighting that there's a problem. Because this stuff's been going on for decades, but it's only really now that it's got this this public visibility and visibility in, in Westminster, right, where conservative politicians are genuinely worried that this is going to affect their, their re-election chances at the next election. When you look into this stuff, it's it's actually quite hard to know what's going on, when sewage is being dumped, where it's being dumped. And a lot of that work is done by campaigners. Some of it's very, very basic of just keeping an eye on the sewage outflows and monitoring them independently, not relying on water company data to know whether it's happening. Some of it involved with sort of academics, universities, incredibly sophisticated, using sort of big data and modeling to figure out if the water companies are breaching their permits. And some of it's good old fashioned campaigning, you know, embarrassing and, and humiliating politicians who voted to allow things to carry on as they are. It's a whole host of things, but what's surprising, I think, when you report on this is that there are grassroots groups everywhere for kind of every river you can think of. There will be local people who are who are campaigning to improve their river and to force water companies and local farmers and local industry to do better. Are ministers taking them seriously? How is the government responding and have they has the government recognised that there is a major issue here? The government has recognised it. You know, DEFRA is, is an interesting department in that most ministers who go into it, even if they're quite sceptical of the objectives when they first turn up, tend to end up being converts because they see the stats, they learn about the biodiversity crisis, uh, they learn about the real science of climate change and, and it scares them and they and they become converts. And, you know, there were a lot of worries about Therese Coffey when she went into the department that she just didn't get it. And I think, at least from, from her speeches and the work she's done so far, that it's clear that she does understand the scale of the issue. And the government has announced plans. It's announced lots of targets for reducing sewage outflows, for reducing agricultural pollution and runoff and, and the like. Um, a lot of that obviously is a legal obligation, which is derived from EU law. And there's a question about whether that EU law will be retained. But when campaigners look at these targets, which are sometimes they're ambitious, sometimes they seem sort of woefully underambitious. The big question is always, well, how are you actually going to make this work? Because it's very easy to stick a target on something and say, 
we will cut phosphorus pollution by 35% in the next 10 years. But how are you actually going to do that? Because it requires money and effort and perseverance. And it requires money both for the carrot and the stick. So with a lot of this stuff, it's about, for example, changing the way farmers farm and and getting them to reduce their reliance on artificial fertilizers um, and encourage them to sort of farm for nature. But that requires substantial subsidies and it requires those subsidies to be certain in the long term. And so far, the evidence is pretty poor. You know, there's not been much sign up to the subsidies so far. And of course, they haven't taken their final form, despite the fact that, you know, the EU referendum was however many years ago now, the post-EU farming subsidies are still still have lots of questions hanging over them. But then the other big question of money is one of enforcement. A lot of the laws, whether it's around agricultural pollution or sewage pollution, are already there. But it's a question of whether they're being enforced. If you look at the Environment Agency over the past decade, its budget has, in real terms, halved, basically, and it's lost thousands of staff. And, you know, lots of people I speak to are incredibly critical of the Environment Agency for for various reasons and question how they do their work. But the one thing that they all also say is that they just do not have the resources, it's not been prioritised for them to be able to go to incidents and investigate them and ensure that these pollution rules are being followed. So I think that's kind of how they see it is that, yes, the government has all these targets and all these ambitions and they all sound good, but how are they actually going to make those targets stick? You know, and are they going to put their money where their mouth is? So it's very obvious that there's a lot that can be done and should be being done. Can you just recap again on why the I and the New Scientists have launched a specific campaign to save Britain's rivers? Yeah, so I think that, like many members of the public, us at the I and at the New Scientists have been shocked by the state of Britain's rivers. And we're acutely aware that they're on a declining path. As I said earlier, you know, down to sort of 6% of rivers in England being and a good ecological status. But also, we know that it can be better and that, you know, we shouldn't just shrug our shoulders and accept that this is the way things are and that things will get worse. We can improve our rivers, we can save them. So I think that there's uh, the sort of three key targets that Ollie Duff, our editor, has has set for this campaign to reveal what's going on in our rivers and, and why, you know, what's happening to them, what's being pumped into them, and why is that being allowed to happen? to make people know about it and to know about the consequences both for for wildlife and for us as people and to get change you know this has been going on for years but finally there's there's public attention and we can help with that we can draw even more attention to it and try and force our politicians to act and to uh, to save our rivers brilliant thank you dan and good luck with the campaign as well thanks very much does your river need help If you have a story or if you would like eye reporters to investigate sewage pumping near you, please email us at i at inews.co.uk. Or if you want to read more of our coverage on this crucial topic, you can at inews.co.uk forward slash save dash Britons dash rivers. For daily coverage of the most important news from across the world, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. We'd love any comments or suggestions, so drop us a line at podcasts at inews.co.uk. And don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast app. Once again, if you have a question for Patrick Coburn about the war in Ukraine, drop us an email. I'm Serena Sandu, and you can follow me on Twitter at serenasandu one Thanks for listening, and Molly Blacker will be back next week but I will catch you next time.